0: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Hello, welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. I'm James Rogers, and in this episode, we have Fred Kaplan. The New York Times best selling author, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, and the author of The Bomb Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. And that's exactly what me and Fred talk about. We jump back into 1945, get into those debates about whether or not the nuclear weapons should be dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and then track how these initial thoughts around bombing strategy spill into the Cold War period. Hi, Fred. Welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing today?
2: Oh, good. Thanks for having me on.
1: Good, good. I'm sure you're even better because you've got your new book out, soon to be out in paperback as well, called The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. And if that doesn't tell us everything we need to know about the book, perhaps you can explain what it's all about.
2: Well, as you say, the book is explained in its subtitle, One thing that I learned in doing the research for this book, which is a combination of very recently declassified archives and interviews with the players, is that there have been more crises in which presidents have seriously thought about using nuclear weapons than we generally know. And that what has generally happened is that these presidents and their advisors, they burrow very deeply into the whole logic of nuclear strategy, the the scenarios, how they will play out, what our weapons can do, what their weapons can do. And then they realize that there's really no good way out of this. I mean, this is not going to lead to anything good. And they scramble out of this rabbit hole as fast as they can and try to come up with some diplomatic solution to the crisis. That is until our current president, President Trump, who thankfully has not been thoroughly tested on this as yet, but who doesn't have a sterling reputation for immersing himself into much of anything. It has to do with logic and arguments and so forth, but who, if he ever were tested, might fail. One question that I ask in this book is, why is it that nobody has used this weapon in wars since 1945? You know, I think if you went back in time told somebody even in 1965 or so that, hey, you know, I'm coming to you from the year 2020 and this thing has never been used by anybody in war. What do you think of that? They would find it hard to believe. It was assumed back in those days that there would be a war at some point and that nuclear weapons would probably be used. So why hasn't it? I think one reason is nuclear deterrence. You know, you bomb us, we bomb you. That can give someone second thoughts as to whether to initiate an act of aggression. Part of it is again, we have been, it doesn't seem so at the time in many cases, but we've been blessed by leaders who actually get smart with this kind of thing. They look at the situation and say, no, I'm not going there. And third is just blind luck. There have been a number of incidents in history where there have been, for example, false warnings of an imminent attack. Luckily, these have mainly happened at times when the basic climate in international politics isn't so tense. And so people looking at the radar screens say, that doesn't look right. And they can wait. If, let's say that the luck was different, and one of these false alerts happened during an immense crisis. And let's say that the president and the Russian premier or whoever wasn't some shrewd, calm person who looked into situations carefully, but who was more brash and rash and more prone to Temper, then, you know, the combination might have led to and might still lead to nuclear catastrophe. So, you know, we're, we're still walking on a very tight wire with this thing.
1: Well, you talk about these ideas of deterrence, and of course, in the book, mutually assured destruction and counterforce and countervalue, these important terms that still play a pivotal role in the debates today, and perhaps help those leaders, like you say, start to come to the conclusion that we need to have a diplomatic out to this. But these terms are from really the foundations of the discussions of that initial nuclear period that comes out of the Second World War. Do we owe a debt to these early thinkers and just the level and quality of thought that went into their nuclear strategizing during that period?
2: To some degree, yes. For example, in 1945, really just a couple of months after Hiroshima, There was a strategist at Yale University who later went to the RAND Corporation named Bernard Brody. And he wrote an essay called The Absolute Weapon. And there were lots of people wondering, okay, how does the bomb change things fundamentally? And what he said, he said, okay, up till now, the whole idea is to figure out how to win a war. Now the fundamental question must be how to prevent one. And he came up with this idea that the best way to prevent a nuclear war was to have an arsenal that could be fairly invulnerable and that could be used to retaliate in kind to an attack by an enemy. And that's the basic bedrock of what nuclear strategy is now. Then lots of things grew out from this. It converges, but only somewhat, with what happened in the real world. A basic premise of this whole thing is who controlled the nuclear bomb when it first came up. And that was this General Curtis LeMay. Curtis LeMay wasn't the first commander of the Strategic Air Command, but he was the first serious one. And in World War II, he had been the commander of the 21st Bomber Command, which did all the firebombing over Japan. And in the spring of 1945, the head of the Army Air Forces asked LeMay, when will the war be over? And LeMay had his staff do all the calculations how much territory there is left in Japan, how many bombs it'll take to incinerate them, how many bombers that'll take, how long it'll take the bombers to get, you know, a real logistical exercise. And he concluded that the war will be over by the 1st of September, because that would be when the United States would have completely incinerated practically every square mile of Japan. There would be nothing else to hit. So that was his notion of what warfare was in the age of aerial warfare bomb everything. And so then when the atom bomb preempted this and he inherited the atom bomb, he was a guy who was going to be in charge of planning the use of the bomb in wartime. This made his point to him all the more compelling because this king could really bomb the hell out of everything. And so there was this policy in the 1950s declared by President Eisenhower and his secretary of state, John Foster Dulles, called massive retaliation. And it converged with LeMay's planning, although from a different angle entirely. Eisenhower was not a bloodthirsty guy. But he thought, as did many people at the time, that there was probably going to be a war with the Soviet Union. And if there was, it would probably go nuclear very quickly. And so the thing was, as Brody said, to prevent this from happening. Well, what's the best way to prevent this from happening? It is to tell the Russians that if you do anything, the damage you face is going to be beyond anything you can possibly imagine. Now, in Eisenhower's mind, he was a penny pincher. The Russians were going to try to slice off a little bit of West Germany or a little bit of Thailand or whatever. He didn't want to send conventional forces all over the world. It would be too expensive. It would drain the army of all of its resources. It would give the Russians the upper hand in determining what happens. So he said, okay, look, if you try to attack Anything that we consider a vital interest, not with nuclear weapons, even with just conventional forces, we will bomb the Soviet Union. Now, how this was operationalized, in 1960, there was the first what was called Single Integrated Operational Plan, the first nuclear war plan. Here's what that said. The plan was if the Soviets tried to cut off a little piece of West Germany or whatever, we would retaliate. We would unleash our entire atomic arsenal as quickly as possible, against every target in the Soviet Union, in the satellite nations of Eastern Europe and China, even if China had nothing to do with the war, it was calculated that this would probably kill about 285 million people. And that did not include the effects of fallout, which would have affected people in Western Europe, probably the United States as well. That was the plan, it wasn't plan A to which there was a plan B over here. No, that was the plan, it was the only plan. Now, around this time, the Russians started developing their own long-range nuclear force. And some people started thinking, well, this massive retaliation ideas, besides its moral problems, is kind of suicidal. Because if the Russians chopped off West Berlin or invaded Germany or whatever, and then we responded by nuking them, they could nuke us. So not only is it suicidal, it also wasn't credible. Would they really believe? And in fact, you know, people like Charles de Gaulle, president of France, said, would an American president risk New York for Paris? And that's why France developed its own nuclear weapons. They didn't think that the United States would use nuclear weapons, knowing that we would be subject to nuclear attack as well. And so strategists here started thinking about two approaches. One, we should really start building up conventional forces, even though that's expensive. But two, they thought about ways to make nuclear war more limited. And so, for example, a scenario arose, and this is the essence of the counterforce strategy. Let's say the Russians try to snip off West Berlin or attack West Germany. We launch a limited nuclear attack just destroying as many of their missiles and bombers and submarines as we can. And then we say, okay, we now have a lot more weapons in reserve. If you attack us, we're going to attack you with those weapons. And the people at the beginning of this thinking, they didn't have very high confidence that this would work. But the idea was, if we can possibly limit the damage done by these things, if we can bring this war to a halt as quickly as possible. And by the way, there was almost nobody at that time who was arguing, well, if the Russians take West Berlin, I guess we're just gonna have to let it go. Even if you might've believed that, you wouldn't say it. There was a cold war. It's not that so-and-so is a cold warrior. There was a cold war. <laughs> and so even though it was known that the ridiculous scene damage that would be done by this, this was a commitment. This was the essence, especially Berlin, West Berlin. There was nothing more holy than protecting that little enclave. So that led to a decade or more of thinking about, well, how do you do this limited nuclear war? Lots of scenarios got spun out. And so then what happened over this period was something very interesting. You think, okay, it's not good enough just to have a force that can retaliate against a Soviet attack. We have to make the Russians believe that we would do this really. Therefore, we have to make ourselves believe it. Therefore, we have to develop certain kinds of weapons and plans and rehearse contingencies and so forth that would make it happen and make the deterrent credible. And therefore, over time, the concept of credible nuclear deterrence and nuclear war fighting converged. In the minds of the people doing this, the two concepts became almost synonymous. And let's think about this for a minute. The early people who are doing this kind of thinking, it all sounds so bloodthirsty, but in fact, the early people within the context of Cold War thinking were the opposite of bloodthirsty. They were trying to avoid the LeMay situation of killing hundreds of millions of people and blowing up everything in a country, even if it had nothing to do with the war at hand. They were, in some very bizarre sense, more humanist by trying to make this more credible. What you end up doing is creating a very bizarre, almost baroquely strange situation. And that is the logic that the presidents who have dealt with these kinds of crises have gone down into And they realize, you know, Kennedy during the Berlin crisis of 1961, which is often not remembered because it's sort of overshadowed by the Cuban Missile Crisis of 62. But a couple of people in the Pentagon and the White House designed a plan That you could do if the Russians really did take West Berlin and we couldn't do anything about it, we could just using 40 bombers and 80 weapons have a good chance of destroying their entire strategic nuclear force. And this looked kind of tempting. This was seriously discussed. But then you look into it more well, what if a few of the Russian weapons survive and they retaliate? Well, that could kill hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of Americans. And in any event, there are short range missiles and they use them against Europe, millions of Europeans. This was in 1961. If there was any point in history that the United States could have something that meaningfully could be called strategic superiority, it was at that moment we had the Russians outnumbered, outgunned. Their forces were in dire condition, very vulnerable. And yet, Kennedy looked at this and said, no, this is just too dangerous. And also the Russians, the prediction was that only 500,000 to a million Russians would be killed. The idea that you'd have a million Russians killed and they would just sit there doing nothing because on this chessboard of nuclear strategy, they saw that there would be checkmate in three moves wasn't very convincing to someone who operates in the real world. And so Kennedy sought a diplomatic way out of the Berlin crisis. So the thing is that for quite understandable reasons, ever since then, strategists and policymakers have looked for ways to make nuclear weapons usable, not because necessarily they want to use them, but because we might have to use them and what's a way to use them that doesn't spur instant catastrophe? And nobody's really been able to come up with a way to do it. People I know who have looked at it seriously and who advocate The development of these limited nuclear options for the reasons that I've laid out, if you really press them on it and you ask them, look, do you really think that two major powers could exchange nuclear weapons, as a prettified language has it, once or twice without the whole thing going up in smoke? And they say, no, probably not. For one thing, it's not like two masters are looking over a chessboard and seeing where all the players are and what all the moves are This is chaos. The nuclear weapon with all these forces, they're going to blow out communications. They're going to blow out satellites. The two presidents might not even know what the hell is going on. They will not know the effect that their weapons had on the other side. They don't even know what's going on in their own country. They will not be able to make a decision. They might not even be able to communicate with each other. So the idea that you could have this very cool, calm, collected notion of tit-for-tat nuclear warfare is kind of insane. Herman Kahn, in his book on thermonuclear war in 1960, said that one of his goals was to make it possible to discuss nuclear war in a very reasonable way, which is fine, but it may just be impossible. And in fact, it may distort the whole nature of the war. If you know going into it that, no, there is no reasonable way to do this. But see, then that leads to another paradox, and that is you can't really say this because that might erode the credibility of your willingness to use nuclear weapons in response to a threat. So the very existence of nuclear weapons creates a situation where you have to pretend that you can do this. For example, one can make a case, let's say the Russians bombed New York. Does it make sense to bomb Moscow in return? What the hell does that do? There have been people talking, but no leader would say that out loud because it might tempt Moscow, not necessarily to bomb New York, but to do something aggressive, knowing that this guy is never going to bomb Moscow. So I can get away with all kinds of stuff. So the existence of the bomb requires that we kind of envelop ourselves in a series of fictions, the perpetuation of which, on the one hand, might indeed prevent war from breaking out. And in fact, I think a case could be made that the existence of the bomb has deterred certain wars from happening that otherwise might have. But at the same time, if war did break out, it almost guarantees a sort of catastrophe that nobody can even imagine now.
1: It's disquieting to hear those figures of not 100 million, but 200 million plus people dead. And of course, the nuclear fires that would spread across Europe and the darkness that comes from that. But it is reassuring to hear that in those discussions, it always seems to come back to more of a rational point that actually we can't really use these weapons but how about LeMay because you take it all the way back to LeMay second world war general bombs away LeMay the cigar smoking general who firebombs Tokyo does he ever get convinced that these are unusable weapons
2: no no not at all I interviewed LeMay for my first book in 1981 I think to him this was what war was he was very much of the view that you don't need armies anymore. Bomb is all you need. That'll do the whole thing. Maybe you need armies to go in and occupy afterwards to, or to restore order at home. No, he thought these were eminently usable. And uh, LeMay, I don't know how many people remember this now, but in 1968, when a segregationist politician named George Wallace ran for president on a third party ticket here, LeMay was his running mate and LeMay famously said that his plan for ending the Vietnam War was to bomb them back to the Stone Age. LeMay was one of these people who thought that the answer to any conflict, either to preventing it from happening or to ending it once it begins, was nuclear weapons. Maybe not the big ones, but tactical ones, as they were called at one point. But that's changed in a way, because Well, even when he was head of SAC, the Air Force was divided into a few factions, the kind of strategic bombing types, like he who had firebombed Tokyo. And then the more the Air Force used in World War II was a subset of the Army. So a lot of the Air Force at that time was providing close air support to troops in Europe. So these people had a more tactical view. But LeMay set the tone for the next 20 years of Air Force and Strategic Air Command culture. But then rose to the four people who had been fighter pilots becoming head of SAC. They were the ones who were looking for limited options, which LeMay would have just thought was absurd. You don't take something as big as the bomb and use it to destroy one electrical plant or something. That was just crazy. And in fact, in the first PSYOP, the first nuclear war plan, there was a city and, say, an electrical power plant very close to each other. He would put the bomb in between so they both get destroyed. And they would call, Okay, the the target was the electrical power plant. But the killing of the city was referred to as bonus. That was bonus. You see, that's the opposite of the counterforce types who said, no, no, we want to avoid hitting cities. At least in this initial thing, we want to destroy their military targets, leave their cities as untouched as possible so that we have bargaining power with the nuclear weapons that we have remaining. But they thought this was just nonsense. And in some ways, LeMay was right. It was kind of nonsense because it skirted the fact that, no, this thing is gonna get out of hand right away. So LeMay's view is if it's gonna get out of hand right away, let's just take advantage of it immediately and bomb everything now before they can take advantage of it.
0: Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
2: One document that I found in researching, which is very interesting, it was during the Berlin crisis of 61. And this was meetings with Kennedy and all of his advisors, top advisors present. What happens if the Russians move in on West Berlin, as Khrushchev was threatening to do at the time? And they come up with four phases. Okay, phase one, we send out a company of troops just to show them that we're committed. That gets beat back. Well, then we send out phase two, we send out a battalion. Phase three, we do things like sending over airplanes, threatening, quarantines, UN resolutions. And then phase four, if none of that worked, nuclear. They divided that into phase 4A, just shoot a bomb someplace. Doesn't matter where, just to show that we are in this. You guys better back off now, because look, we just exploded a nuclear weapon someplace. 4B was using nukes on a military way, tactical way, destroying gathered Russian troops outside of West Berlin or something. Then 4C was general war. It was the unleash everything, kill 280 million people. And there are serious arguments. Well, for one thing, like McNamara, Secretary of Defense, he argued for a conventional response. We need to build up conventional forces fast. General Loris Norstad, who was the commander of NATO, said, no, this is a horrible idea. The more you talk about conventional forces, the more you convince Khrushchev that we're not gonna use nuclear weapons. And if he thinks we're not gonna use nuclear weapons, our deterrence is shot. Then the argument became Kennedy asked, could we do 4A and B, you know, the limited nuclear thing, and keep 4C from happening? Some officials in the Pentagon said, no, we need to do 4C, the all out, right away. Because if we just do 4A or B, the Russians will going to use nuclear weapons, and then we'll lose. Whereas if we do 4C right away, we can win. These are from the almost verbatim notes that were taken in this meeting. This was what Herman Kahn would call the cool, calm, reasonable discussion about using nuclear weapons. And these weren't gallivanting strategists at the Rand Corporation. These were the commander of NATO, the secretary of defense, the secretary of state. And this was what led Kennedy to figure out a way to to end this thing before we got to that point. Because if you were committed to protecting West Berlin, and as I say, nobody in this meeting says, is West Berlin really worth it? then you're going to find yourself marching into a holocaust. And Kennedy decided that, no, we're not going to do that. Kennedy ran for president in 1960, in part on the notion of a missile gap, that the Russians were outdoing us in missilery. And it's because Eisenhower was old and sclerotic, and we need energetic leadership. He gets him to the White House, and he learns that, oh, actually, there's new data from the brand-new reconnaissance satellite showing, oh, shit, there isn't a missile gap or there is, but we're ahead. We're way ahead of they are. And Khrushchev is bluffing. Khrushchev has taken advantage of this. He's been telling them we're cranking out ICBMs like sausages. They were doing no such thing. The Air Force intelligence had said that they had 250 ICBMs. It turned out there were four, four Soviet ICBMs. So Kennedy decides the way to get out of the Berlin crisis is to tell the Russians that we know that they don't have anything. They don't have the leverage They were using our perception of the missile gap as leverage for their exertion of strength. So he had the deputy secretary of defense give a speech where he said, listen, he laid out what we have, what they have. Even if they launched a first strike, we would still be ahead of them. They don't have anything. This speech took place during a Communist Party Congress. Khrushchev saw that his bluff was called. And by the way, Khrushchev generally thought that the United States was planning a first strike against the Soviet Union, And now he knows that we know that he has nothing to strike back with. So he decides, as an interim measure, to put medium-range missiles in Cuba, which would have the same effect as long-range weapons in the United States. And they would have something that could strike back against targets in the United States. And that's what led to the Cuban Missile Crisis. So see, sometimes even diplomatic solutions can escalate the situation in some other way.
1: And dare I ask, how did LeMay want to solve the Cuban missile crisis?
2: Well, LeMay by this time was the Air Force Chief of Staff. And the Chiefs of Staff, unanimous view, and this included people like Maxwell Taylor, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was, okay. we've got to go take out these missiles right now. Not necessarily with nuclear weapons, but we've got to bomb them right now. And Kennedy, it's very interesting. And this is where it's important who is president. Because, okay, the Cuban Missile Crisis lasted 13 days. And there were these ongoing conferences with what was called the XCOM, the Executive Committee of the National Security Council, talking in the White House about what to do. Kennedy secretly tape recorded all of these conversations. And it's amazing how few historians have actually drawn on these tapes to see what was going on. Initially, they did a blockade of Cuba. But that was a short-term thing. It gets to the end, these missiles are going up, the warheads are being put in them, and so the question comes down to, what do we do? So Khrushchev sends a telegram on this Saturday, the final day, and he says, okay, I will take out my missiles from Cuba. If you take out your very similar missiles from Turkey, okay, right away, everybody around the table goes nuts. This would be a horrible idea. NATO will be wrecked. The Turks will be annoyed. Our credibility will be shot. And by the way, this wasn't just the general saying. This was Robert McNamara, McGeorge Bundy, Robert Kennedy. This was everybody around the table. John Kennedy says, well, I don't know. Any man at the UN would look at this and think it was a very reasonable deal, fair trade. Everybody goes, not you know? He goes, well, I'm just thinking. And by the way, the plan was that Monday, two days later, we were gonna start bombing the missiles. 500 sorties a day, and then a week later, invading the island of Cuba. And Kennedy says, you know, I'm just thinking, what we're about to do, 500 sorties a day, followed by an invasion, the Russians will almost certainly grab Berlin, we could get into a real serious war, and if it's discovered that this deal was on the table, we're not gonna have a good war. Again, everybody goes nuts, Bottom line is, Kennedy takes the deal. He sends Bobby over to the Russian ambassador to take the deal. He tells six people about it. And he tells them nobody is going to say a word about this ever. Because at that time, the deal was publicly known it would be appeasement. Kennedy called Eisenhower on the phone to tell him the crisis is over. And the cover story was that we agreed not to invade Cuba. And Eisenhower asks Kennedy, there wasn't any secret backroom deal on this, was there? He goes, oh, No general, no other way. He lied to Eisner because, again, he would have been impeached. So he's telling everybody, nobody has to say a word about this. Okay, now, one of the people that he did not tell was Lyndon Johnson, his vice president, who became president a few months later after Kennedy was killed, and who thought that the Cuban Missile Crisis was ended because, as the cliche had it, we went eyeball to eyeball with the Russians and they blinked. And nobody around him taught him otherwise. He never knew about the deal. And so when he went into Vietnam, he took the lessons of the Cuban Missile Crisis with him, that we have to show strength, not diplomacy. And interestingly, George Bundy, Kennedy's national security advisor, in his posthumous memoir, says that it's a tragedy that we kept this falsehood alive for so long because it perpetuated false lessons about how to handle conflicts, which was his way of saying it extended the Vietnam War. So in other words, these things have cascading effects that nobody can foresee. But still, let's say if anybody else around that table, other than John Kennedy, had been president, there would have been war because we learned later that there were warheads already on some of those missiles. And we learned much later that the Russians had secretly placed 40,000 troops on the island of Cuba to stave off an invasion. If we had gone ahead with the invasion, there would have been World War III. That is a lot of people, a lot of historians see where everything in history is structural, the role of individuals doesn't make that much difference. Not true. There are structural things that everybody has to play within, but who is president at a given time or who is in any number of important positions can make an absolutely crucial difference.
1: And this is what I think your book does so well, because you take us on a journey. You provide us with a tour de force of how Kennedy reacted to the Cuban Missile Crisis, like you say, and LBJ in Vietnam, but all the way through to Obama and Trump today. And I suppose I can't let you go without asking, from all of your studies into all of these presidents and their papers and their debates and their understandings of nuclear war, which has been the best at dealing with the bomb.
2: Kennedy, because Kennedy came into office a pretty strong hawk. A few days after inauguration, he had the Joint Chiefs of Staff come in and say, I'm going to rely on you a lot. I'm going to be talking to you all the time. He had been a rather heroic lieutenant, ahead of a PT boat in World War II. And he's dealing with a guy like LeMay, who is a general. He's dealing with people who were admirals and generals during World War II. So he's naturally looking up to these people and thinking they are special. Through a series of crises, first in Laos, then in Berlin, then in Cuba, he realizes there's nothing special about these guys. They're not smarter than I am. And he realizes from the Cuban crisis in particular, even my civilian guys have their problems. And, you know, right after the Cuban Missile Crisis, he and Khrushchev both realized that they'd just missed the bullet. And they started doing some interesting things. They set up a hotline. They negotiated a limited test ban treaty. Kennedy gave an amazing speech. You should go back and read it. It's a a remarkable speech in June of 63 at American University, calling for an end to the Cold War. The jams on Voice of America were lifted so that Russians could hear this speech. It was printed in full. In his Vestia and Pravda, Khrushchev told the American ambassador it was the greatest speech by an American president since Roosevelt. There were things that were maybe going to happen. And then Kennedy was assassinated. And then Khrushchev was overthrown by hardliners. And 1964 is really when the arms race, as we know it, got started. So one history professor of mine told me once, in history, big doors often swing on small hinges. And the fact that Kennedy was president in 1961 and 62, and then wasn't president. After the end of 1963, made an enormous difference on what happened afterwards.
1: And as we approach a US election, it's one hell of a point to finish on, isn't it? It's just so important who the president is, what their experience is, and how much of a good leader they are.
2: That's right. Absolutely.
1: Well, Fred, thank you so much. Where can people buy the book? And what's next?
2: Well, as they used to say it, bookstores everywhere. And I suppose on Amazon, and there's an ebook, there's an audio book. I've never listened to it. I didn't read it. It's still in hardcover. It will be out in paperback in February. I write a twice weekly column at slate.com. Not working on any other books at the moment. It's sort of hard my technique of research for books is a lot of archival libraries and going to interview a lot of people in person. And that's kind of impossible to do at the moment. So yes, read Slate, read the book. And thanks for the interview. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Fred, thank you so much.
2: Thanks.